So tonight we will be in Psalm 77. Now, uh, as I said earlier, we are, um, so we're going to be in the Psalms all the way through the month of September. Um, and then once we get in October, we're going to begin uh, in the book of Judges. So that is still the plan, and that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, although I will tell you that Psalm 80, I mean Psalm 78, uh, will be, we'll probably be taking in, likely in two parts. It's a very long psalm you can see there in Psalm 78. It's got uh, somewhere around 72 verses. So, <laughs> so, uh, so um, it's a, if you preach that in one shot, you have to preach thematically. <laughs> so, um, but we'll see how that, uh, uh, how that uh, works out. But uh, we are going to take all of Psalm 77, and uh, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. I'm going to bring the text up on the screen for us. Hear the word of the Lord. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember his deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So I keep hearing um, advertisements for this uh, for for counseling apps on your smartphone, and um, now um, now actually I, I do think counseling is valuable. In person counseling is is best. Um, and I do, but I do think it actually is good for um, even that type of mobile counseling, kind of something is better than nothing <laughs> kind of thing for people to try to deal with some of their mental health uh, issues and problems and to be able to reach out to a counselor. But not all counseling is good counseling, I have to admit that. Um, but there is just a, there's but it's indicative of a problem in that there is a lot of depression and anxiety and struggle today. And this in spite of all that we have, in spite of being the wealthiest nation in the world, in the history of the world, 
we deal with severe issues of depression. And even as Christians, when we get into a dark place in our lives, it can seem like there is no way out of it. We can become consumed with our sorrows and our fears. And so what do we do when we are in the midst of that struggle? Well, the psalmist here shows us how to fight even when we are on the way down. And then he shows us uh, that when we are in the midst of our sorrows and our struggles and our doubts, the way forward. And so he shows us how to fight on the way down, and he shows us, even in the midst of that, the way forward. And we'll look at each one tonight. But first, let's look at how to fight on the way down in verses 1 through 9. And the first thing that jumps out in the first three verses is that we ought to, it is biblical and right, to let out our troubled and desperate cry to the Lord. The psalmist begins with this double statement of his cry out to God. Now, that word cry actually comes off a bit more sanitary uh, than the word actually means. It comes out more dignified than the word means. The usage here literally means to shout, to wail out to God. It's hard to maintain your dignity when you're wailing, right? When you're weeping. There is no thought to how you look in that time. It is uh, striking here because it's not only a disturbing uh, uh, idea to think about what kind of circumstance would I be in where I would be wailing out to the Lord, but also note that he says, as I wail out to the Lord, I know, I am confident that he will hear me. There are many today who, uh, who would argue, and they, they may not say it out loud, but they feel internally, and maybe they feel guilty about thinking it, or maybe they say, I mean it, but they actually feel like God shouldn't bring us to the point where we're crying in that kind of a way. Like, should God allow his people to get to that point when we're wailing and weeping? You know, I thought God was supposed to take care of me. I thought God loved me, but... Uh, but that is not the thought pattern of the psalmist. That very idea doesn't even enter into his mind. He, he does, he's not shocked or surprised that he's weeping and wailing, but he has absolute confidence that his Lord heal, hears him. And that may be something that we need to take to heart, that God may not prevent those moments where we come into ourselves in our own lives where we are wailing out to the Lord, but we can be confident that he hears us. Unless we think this is unbecoming of God's people, consider the words of the author of the, of the book of Hebrews, what he said about Jesus in Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. When I imagine Jesus praying, I'll tell you, I don't imagine Jesus weeping and wailing. I don't even imagine offering up prayers with loud cries and tears. Do you? I don't normally think of Jesus praying in that way. He's very Presbyterian when he prays. He's very calm and collected. He's got his thoughts together. Very orderly in his manner of prayer, right? But that's not what, this, that's not what the author of Hebrews said. He wept. He cried out. And I think there's a lot there that we could dwell on and consider. Because if Jesus was moved to pray with loud cries and tears, then let us not be ashamed in the times where we are brought there too, to do the same. And further, if our Lord prayed in such a way, should we not rather expect 
to do so in our own lives. We should not be surprised. In the day of his trouble, the psalmist seeks the Lord. But many in their troubles do not seek the Lord. We rather seek the world. We seek the comforts that the world can provide. We seek the solutions that the world can provide. We're tempted to often seek distraction, even to dull our emotions and our senses. But we are here given a righteous example of seeking the Lord well into the night in cries unto God. The psalmist is not worried about what time he's got to get up to work in the morning. But this is one of those situations where it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like when this is, this is an emergency room, like I'm not going to work anyway tomorrow kind of situation. The kind where you call into work and they say, don't you worry about it, we'll take care of it, you go take care of your family type of situation. The psalmist is troubled to his very soul. And further what troubles him is that his soul refuses to be comforted. I know what that feeling looks like. The feeling is like when you just, there's a deep sadness and it just won't, even as you talk to yourself and you preach the gospel to yourself, there's just that deep sadness that won't leave. It won't be comforted. There's too much pain. As Spurgeon uh, wrote about this, he says, it's actually impossible to comfort those who refuse to be comforted. And he went on to say that many a daughter of despondency pushed aside, has pushed aside the cup of gladness. And many a man of sorrow, sorry, and many a son of sorrow has have hugged his chains. But the psalmist remembers God and meditates upon him, even while he is so troubled and incapable of being comforted. He moans and he faints from exhaustion. He has no more tears to pray. And even while the issue here is unresolved. We ought to be encouraged to come to the Lord in our trouble because he is the only one who can help us. The only one who will fully and completely receive us. Yet, as the psalmist continues, he shows us uh, how we are to seek our hope uh, even as we are on the way down, as it were. The psalmist experiences insomnia, he says, which he attributes to God. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I can't shut my eyes. He's so bothered he cannot sleep at night. He is so troubled, he says, he cannot even speak. His one commentator put it this way. He said his troubles have outweighed his capacity to pray. And we find in the Psalms vivid descriptions like this that shock us. They're shocking because they actually touch some of the darkest and hardest moments that we have ever experienced or perhaps have yet to experience. They remind us that even the worst the world can throw at us will not overcome us, but that a psalmist from thousands of years ago wrote about it. That what we are enduring and going through are not sorrows that are unknown to the world even if they are new in our experience. But we need to read on to find out why we can have the, the confidence that the psalmist has. But uh, Samuel Rutherford is one, a Puritan um, uh, in Europe, in the, so around 1600 or so, and he, um, 
he wrote this about weeping, wailing before the Lord on this psalm. He said, tears have a tongue and grammar and language that our Father knoweth. Tears have a tongue and a grammar and language that our Father knoweth. Babies have no prayer for milk, yet the mother can read hunger in their weeping. As the psalmist cannot speak, he resolves to meditate in his heart and to remember his song. And what song does he have? Well, ultimately, uh, this is all going to lead us to verses 10 through 20. But I merely want us to note here how this man, like this, this, is, this is a psalm about a man fighting for hope. He's fighting for hope in an incredibly dark moment. He prays until he is exhausted. And he turns and makes a diligent search of his knowledge of God. The experience, the things that he knows, the scriptures he's memorized. And what follows is not an outpouring of his feelings about God or he's sudden somehow speaking his truth as so many people today declare that they're speaking. He is speaking from the objective reality of the work of God in the midst of his people now and in generations past. There's a reason we need to know our biblical history. Reasons we need to know our church history. Because we need to be reminded that there were Christians who lived before us. There are Christians who have suffered before us. There are Christians who have gone through things even far worse than what we have gone through. And yet their Lord did not abandon them. Part of church history is to give us comfort and strength in the midst of our struggles. And to remind us that our God is faithful. And so the psalmist sets for us a wonderful example of not giving up, but of how to fight for hope in the darkest of times. And the immediate result of this search produces questions of faith and doubt in verses 7 through 9. Now the questions the psalmist comes up with are, are obviously rhetorical questions with the answer being no. He is, in essence, asking questions of three types of questions. He's asking if God will forsake him if God will fail him, and if God will forget him. Those are the questions that many people ask when they fall upon hard and difficult times. Has God forsaken me? Has he said, I'm done with you? Has God failed me? It's kind of the older brother approach, you know. I did what I was supposed to do. Has God failed me? to do what he was supposed to do, or because God failed to come through for his promises, with his promises? Or has God forgotten me? Has he forgotten that I exist? Has he forgotten my problems? Is he neglecting me? When we hear these questions, we observe the distance between what we know and the experience of the moment that we have. We know what is true, but it doesn't feel true in our circumstances. There are times when I have asked these questions myself. I've asked myself, does the Lord not love you anymore? Has the Lord forgotten you? Is, is that even possible, Eric? Is the Lord unable to help you? Has he, has he suddenly, uh, you know, just not been able to do that anymore? 
And in speaking these questions out, like the psalmist does, I, I literally, I've, sometimes I've laughed at how silly my doubts were, right? But they felt so real. But sometimes asking those big questions that we're afraid to ask and saying them out loud can almost bring a laughable response, but only if you know what God has done and who he is. But the doubts come because of real pain and real difficulty. These questions of doubt actually become opportunities for faith as we remind ourselves that the Lord does indeed love us, that he is able to deliver us, and that he will never forget us. There was a Puritan pastor named William Gurnall in the 1600s in England, or I'm not sure if he was in England, actually. Yes, he was in England, never mind. He was in England, and he became a pastor at the age of 28, married a year later. He had 14 children, eight of whom survived. Grinnell pastored his church through the English Civil War, through the temporary uh, um, Puritan-friendly protectorate headed up by Oliver Cromwell, and then after Oliver Cromwell's death, through the Restoration Charles, Charles II, when uh, Catholicism kind of came back in through the Anglican Church and the passing of the Act of Uniformity, which ejected more than 2,500 Puritan ministers out of their pulpits. Now, Grinnell actually signed on to the Act of Uniformity, which earned him a lot of ire from his fellow Puritans. He also struggled with bad health most of his life. One can only imagine the hard times of prayer that this man experienced, the darkness that he had to endure, the tough decisions that he had to make to sign or not to sign the act of uniformity, to go through the civil war, to lose six children. You know, and even then we tend to go back and go like, well, you know, life expectancy it was, was not that high. It's like that still didn't make it easy to lose a child. Go read the journals. Go read what they wrote. They weep, they wept, they grieved. They weren't any less sensitive to losing their children. Thinking about this diligent search in verse 6 and the questions that arise from it, Grinnell wrote about, about it in, in his commentary on the psalm, and he, he wrote that this, these questions, this sincere searching is what every soul sincere soul does when wrestling with doubt he says that you know if you if you smell burning in your house you will not rest unless you check every room only a fool would go to sleep so he could wake up with fire around his ears likewise sincere believers struggling with doubt seek their hope in god and wrestle while those who do not believe are secure and careless about ultimate things. Sometimes the path of faith, we are unfortunately have reminded the hard way that sometimes the path of faith winds through the dark valley of the shadow of death. That path can be shockingly painful and filled with indescribable loss, especially if we're just coming off of the grassy meadows and the bubbling brooks. The psalmist shows us that even on the way down, we ought to fight for our hope and cry out to God 
to ask the, the questions that we're actually wrestling with. And then he shows us the way forward in verses 10 to 20. So remember that the psalmist here, he's, he's primarily seeking comfort for his soul. That's what he's after. He's not after changing his circumstances. He doesn't talk about that. He's seeking, his soul refuses to be comforted. And so he is looking for comfort for his soul. He hasn't been unable to get it. So where do we find it? And so, we, so, and so he's asked these questions. He's begun a diligent search. But he begins a more focused approach in verses 10 to 12. And so upon re- the reflection and, the, and these questions, he determines that the best way to, to seek comfort for his soul is to appeal to the testimony of the power of God in the life of his people. This appeal includes three verbs, remembering, pondering, and meditating. And the object of, the, of our remembering, pondering, and meditating is the wondrous works of Yahweh. And here we see the mind and heart working together with the mind recalling and the heart cherishing. Martin Luther wrote that the heart cannot remember what the mind does not show. And so and we see the mind and the heart working together, recalling in the mind that the heart may cherish. If we do not engage our minds for God to consider his words and deeds, we will be tempted to think that God has truly abandoned us and seek our comfort in the things of the world, which we know only fail to satisfy. I mean, it's, it, there is an irrationality to it. Because if for some reason we think that the transcendent, sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe can't meet our needs, then why in the world would we think that anything else would? If he can't do it, then nobody can. Charles Spurgeon on this psalm encourages us to consider the word of the Lord and the works that he has done on our behalf. He says, whatever else may glide into oblivion, the marvelous works of the Lord in the ancient days must not be suffered to be forgotten. For memory is a fit handmaid for faith. When faith has its seven years of famine, memory like Joseph in Egypt opens her granaries. I love that imagery he gives. When faith has its seven years of famine, memory like Joseph in Egypt opens her granaries. Let us remember the great works of God. And so he moves into verses 13 to 20 to meditate, indeed, to to recall the wonderful works of God. And the psalmist begins uh, where he ought to, with God himself. That God is his unique and holy being as the incomparable God. He is the God who works wonders. He is the God who redeems his people. And he returns to a common point that, uh, that many Israelites rightly turn to in their times of struggle. You read about it again and again and again. When you read your Old Testament, it is, of course, the Exodus. The language is a bit broadened out uh, it, it, to kind of bring in some general creation level imagery. But the focus here is particularly on the moment of the Red Sea where the waters flee from the presence of God that he might deliver his people. And certainly God's people should always look back 
to the creation of the world and remind themselves of God's sovereign power, his ability to create from nothing all that there is. But we must not stop there. We must go through into the Exodus moment where God brings his people out of slavery and sorrow and frees them from the power of Pharaoh. As the psalmist says, the holy way of God was through the sea. That is not the way his people would have chosen, if you recall. That is not the way that you or I would have chosen if we had been there. Yet it is the way of the Lord. Even though his footprints were unseen, he led his people through the sea like a flock of sheep. Indeed, he used Moses and Aaron to do it. The great prophet and the great high priest he used. The Exodus is the creation event of the nation of Israel. It is viewed by the Old Testament authors as the seminal point of their history. It is the event that they return to again and again and again to remind themselves of who they are and who God is. It is the point that God brings them back to in saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember that? It defines who they are. Before they had done anything to deserve it, God remembered his covenant promises to Abraham and delivered Israel from Egypt, that they would be his people. And in the dark times of the nation's history, they would return to that moment to find hope, to find the call to repentance, to find the call to faith and obedience. As the people of God, this is our heritage as well. The story of creation, the story of the exodus, yet we have something even better for while God delivers his people by the way of the sea, as, the New, as, as it says in the New Testament, we are given a different way, the way of the cross. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the better Moses. It goes on to tell us that he, that he is also the better Aaron, the better high priest. He is the perfect prophet who has led a greater exodus than Moses led. And his way was not the one that we would have chosen. Because his way was not through politics, power, or wealth. His way was one of suffering and death on the cross for our sake. So as we meditate upon the wondrous works of God, we must ultimately come to the redemptive work of God on the cross as the Father gave his only Son that we might live, that we might overcome death and sorrow. So as we think upon the psalm, we note that while it's not wrong or sinful to ask God to change our circumstances, it's not. But we also know that the psalmist doesn't ask him to do it. The most important thing for the psalmist, and the most important thing, even if, we asking, if we're asking God to change our circumstances, the most important thing for the psalmist here is for comfort for his soul. And that is not found in changes to his external situation. There are plenty of people, plenty of people in this world with lots of wonderful externals and yet they have no comfort for their souls. 
but the comfort for the soul comes in the inward renewal through meditation upon the redemptive works of God. It is a seed here of what would come later, of what Paul would declare that we can do all things, that we can endure every situation through Christ who strengthens us. So as we close tonight, consider in this psalm how it begins with the psalmist talking about his troubles, using a lot of first-person singulars, I, I, I. But by the end, we don't see the psalmist anymore. We only hear God. We only hear about him. That is the way forward. When we're stuck in the dark, we cry out to God, casting our dignity aside, putting to our pride to death, and we remember his works, his works in creation, his works in Israel, and most of all, his work of salvation and redemption for the church in Jesus Christ. To remember is more than simply to call to mind. When God remembers his covenant, he delivers his people as he did with the Exodus. And when we remember the wondrous works of God, we are consumed by his light and our hope is renewed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you give us hope and direction, instruction even, about how to fight for hope, even as we are descending in darkness. For this life is filled with many sorrows and tribulations and challenges. And you do not, you do not, your word does not shy away from those dark moments, those heart-rending times where we are wailing out from pain and sorrow and loss and deep grief when our souls refuse to be comforted. But you meet us in our moment. You meet us in that moment not with happy words, not with little catchphrases, but you meet us in that moment with the cross of your blessed son. You meet us in that moment and declare to us that you have redeemed our sorrows and redeemed our suffering in your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, may we remember that when we are entering into the darkness of our lives. When sorrow and grief are coming upon us, may we recall and meditate and dwell upon the wondrous works of our God. And Lord, may your light fill us that we may, even if we are in that darkness for a while, that we would know that we are not alone and that darkness is not forever. And that one day, there will be nothing but light, for darkness will be a memory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's.